Hey everyone, it's good to be with you today. My name is Jared Bias, and I'm the co-host of The Bible for Normal People. But more importantly, Josh and I go way back. We went to seminary together back in those days that we maybe don't care to remember as much. And I've gotten a word here by watching these videos that Josh has been taking you guys through Joel Baden's David. So that's really exciting to hear about congregations really wrestling with historical critical issues in the Bible. And Josh seems like he's doing a, a good job. And in fact, it's a little intimidating because I don't have the song and dance that, that Josh has. I don't have the hair that Josh has. So please bear with me. Just understand that, you know, when he's out, we got to take a step down. We got to lower the bar and lower the expectations. But I'm excited to, to be here with you guys and talking about what we're going to talk about today, which is Genesis chapter 32. And I didn't just pick that randomly. It's part of the lectionary this uh, week. And <clears throat> I like to stick with the lectionary when I can. It's always a nice surprise. But in this case, it's so timely and it seemed like such a great story to talk about. And it's really a conversation about what it means to struggle with God. But before we get there, we got to back up and, and paint the picture of this relationship between these two brothers. So if we look at Genesis chapter 25, we have a story of these twins that are born to Isaac and Rebecca, and their names are Jacob and Esau. You may have heard of them. And from the very beginning, one of the first verses that introduce us to Jacob and Esau uses the word struggle. They struggle in the womb, it says. Now, interestingly, this word isn't translated struggle anywhere else when it's used in the Hebrew Bible. It's actually translated oppressed or crushed. So only here is it tamed down to be translated struggled. But there's some major contention going on even in the womb. Esau comes out first and Jacob comes out grabbing his brother's heel. And so Jacob means the heel grabber. And these two brothers, they grow up as opposites. Esau is hairy, and Jacob is, we learn later on, smooth-necked. Esau grows up as an outdoorsman. Jacob is a mama's boy. That's, that's just the truth. That's not meant as a judgment. He's a mama's boy who prefers to stay indoors. And we say he's a mama's boy because Isaac, it says explicitly, loved Esau but Rebecca loved Jacob. So we have these opposites that are twins. They are from the same family, born at the same time, and yet they can't stand each other. We see this really in two episodes in the life of Jacob and Esau. First, there's a story of Esau who is starving when he comes back from a hunt, and Jacob, being the domestic one, has this pot of stew that he's made and is smelling over the oven. And Esau basically says, give me some stew. I'm going to die if I don't get some food in me. And Jacob, being the heel grabber, the deceiver that he is, says, hey, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you a bowl of stew. And basically he says, what good is a birthright if I'm dead? Maybe Esau was a little dramatic, okay? So he gets the stew, and on they go in their life. Then the next episode in Genesis 27 now is about the blessing, about what 
Jacob and Esau will receive from Isaac. And it's an interesting story that basically Isaac calls Esau into his room and says, it's time. It's time for me to give you the firstborn, the blessing. But first, go out and hunt for me the best of what you have. And bring it, let's make some food. Rebecca hears about this, and Rebecca now is the heel grabber. And she is, gets this uh, mischievous plan to steal the blessing from Esau and give it to her other son, Jacob. This has got some questionable, questionable morals in this story, for sure. So Rebecca hears about it, quick makes up Isaac's favorite meal, calls Jacob in and says, listen, I got a plan. You got to go in and take this food in and pretend to be Esau. And of course, Jacob says, are you kidding me? Like, have you, did you read Genesis 25 and 26? Like he's hairy, he's an outdoorsman, he has a certain smell. And she says, hey, I got you covered. So they take goat hair and they put it on uh, Jacob and they put Esau's clothes on him and go in to fool Isaac, who, by the way, important plot twist to the story, has really poor eyesight. So they go in, Jacob lies, he deceives, and he gets the blessing. And then Esau gets this, not even a blessing, it was, it's ridiculous. Again, questionable parenting through and through from Isaac and Rebecca here in these stories. But Esau holds a grudge, it says, and he's waiting for Isaac to die so that he can go and kill his brother. Now, now sometimes I think we read over this story too quickly to recognize in it the humanity, the, the pain and the sorrow of having brothers who most twins that I know grow up thick as thieves and have a special connection, to have these two at each other's throat, to be hating each other, and to have parents taking sides and getting in the middle and blessings and birthrights being stolen. This is like an episode of succession. This is not something we should rush over, but feel the pain of maybe tying it to our own experiences with siblings just to understand the plot and what's going on here. Of course, this has a theological and historical significance as Esau becomes Edom, and the Edomites then have this contentious relationship with Israel and, and so on and so forth. But the text itself tells this tragic story of, of two brothers. And Rebecca again gets wind of this plan of Esau's to kill Jacob. And so she tells Jacob he needs to run away, and, and so he does. He runs away to his uncles, and we're going to fast forward from here, and we're going to go 20 years into the future, which is where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 32 with the lectionary text here. And Jacob sends word that he's about to leave Uncle Laban's house. He sends word and says, hey, I'm, about, out, I'm out and about. I'm out of hiding. And Esau, I need you to know. And uh, you kind of get the feeling he doesn't want to just bump into Esau. That might not bode well for him. So he's sort of trying to uh, feel his way and say, hmm, how's this going to go? And at the very least, I don't want to surprise the brother who 20 years ago wanted to kill me. And <clears throat> so 32.6 says, uh, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. 
And this is, this is a dramatic point. It's purposely ambiguous, right? So Jacob sends these messengers out to say, hey, Jacob's out and about, just wanted to let you know. And Esau responds and says, uh, <clears throat> we went to your brother, with the messengers respond, we went to your brother and he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Of course, we're supposed to assume this is an army, right? Or Jacob assumes this. He becomes frightened. Um, he, he thinks that Esau is looking for a fight. So he sends gifts ahead. You know, Jacob, the uh, perennial trickster and manipulator uh, who's trying to always just pacify the people who are legitimately mad at him for legitimate reasons. He stays behind for one last night, hoping that the gift will soothe his brother's anger. And this is where our story comes into play in, in Genesis 32. It says, a man wrestled with him, meaning Jacob, until daybreak. And when they were at a standstill, the man touched the sock, the socket of his hip and injured Jacob, which resulted in a limp. And even though he is injured, Jacob still doesn't relent. He's a fighter until uh, the man blesses him. And he does by changing his name from Jacob to Esau, which means one who strives or struggles with God. It turns out Jacob wasn't wrestling with a man, but with God. This is confirmed when Israel names the place Peniel, which means uh, the face of God, because he had seen, the text says, God face to face and had lived to tell the tale. So we find out that before, the night before, he ends up having to go struggle and fight it out with his brother. In his mind, these 400 people coming after him, he has to struggle with God. And he sees God face to face. You have struggled with God, it says, and overcome, of course, but not without a price. I find these wrestlings and strugglings with God often lead to a limp. And that's how it is with Jacob slash Israel. So this story has meant a lot to me over the past several months. Frankly, it's meant a lot to me over the past several years as my faith has taken its own turns and shifts. I see so many, and, and with the podcast, we have so many people reach out to us who are, are struggling with God. They're striving with God. And so this story has always been very permission-giving for a lot of people. The, the birth of a nation, this Israel, this Israelite nation, out of which comes Jesus, out of which comes our Christian faith, it is coming from this struggle. Their faith is born of a wrestling match with God. You know, in my tradition, struggling with God was not an option. Striving with God was not okay. How dare we? Who are we to question God? Who are we to wrestle with God? But this story symbolizes an interesting intimacy that we see throughout our Bibles. And we can look through it starting here in Genesis uh, back in chapter 18. We have Abraham already arguing with God and winning, by the way. Arguing with God, negotiating with God and winning in 18. And then in chapter 32, we have Jacob literally physically wrestling with God and out of that becoming Israel. We jump ahead a few chapters to the beginning of Exodus and, and it's Moses now who questions God in chapter 5 and argues with God in Exodus 32 and in that famous story of the golden calf. 
we keep going through and we find Jeremiah, one of my favorites, because he complains a lot. And I have been known to complain, right? In fact, funny side story, all the other day, my mom sent me the other day, this was probably a year ago, it's the other day in, in coronavirus time. It feels like the other day, but I forgot we, we lost like six months in there. But anyway, my mom sent me all my old uh, report cards and the only note in almost all of them, it was embarrassing to show my wife, but she also just said, yeah, I know, I could have told you that, was, hey, great kid, talks a little too much and complains a lot. So there you go. That's why Jeremiah, we have this, uh, we have this connection. We're like this. Jeremiah complains often, not just to God, but about God. We see this in chapter 12 and in 17 and 20. Jeremiah is complaining about God, sometimes to God. And then we fast forward and we have this book of Job, which there are many ways to read it, but, but I like to read it as uh, that Job challenges God and declares his innocence. And at the end of the book, God actually sides with Job. The one who's been arguing for his innocence, saying that God, there's something up. There's something wrong with your creation, something wrong with what's happening in the fabric of, of the universe, something wrong with you. But listen, it's not me. And in the end, God sides with Job. Our Bible through and through in, in the Hebrew Bible shows a God who can handle our arguments and our complaints, a God who finds intimacy when we bring all of ourselves, those parts that hate God, those parts that love God, those parts that don't know what to do with God, those parts that love our neighbor and hate our neighbor and don't, and, and don't know what to do with our neighbor. These examples for me are permission giving because it all begins here in the Hebrew Bible. It begins here in Genesis 32. Um, and so it's been such a valuable story for my faith journey. And to take that further, I think I would suggest we could learn a lot from our Jewish cousins who have taken these passages more seriously, I would surmise, than Christians over the years. They've built into their culture, they've built into their faith practice, the art of arguing well with God and with others. I love Fiddler on the Roof and I love Tevye's example of this, who, who doesn't know his Bible well by any stretch and yet isn't hesitant to to use it against God and to use it against his neighbors in these ways that are, are, are funny. So I want to just make three quick points. You know, um, you can take the boy out of Southern Baptist pastorate, but you can't take the three point sermon out of the, out of the boy. So just three quick points that I've been thinking about a lot. Three things I, I think our Jewish cousins maybe have learned better than us um, about <clears throat> these passages. The first, and they'll be quick, don't worry. The first is, you know, we don't get to decide who is in and who is out. We don't get to decide who is in and who is out. And we like to think that we're the gatekeepers of our faith, but we're not. And even though Jacob and Esau were opposites, they were still brothers. There was nothing that could make them not brothers. They were kin, they were family. Their identity wasn't based on what they believed, but on the family that they were born into. So it's, improbably, it's probably then important to pay attention uh, when Paul and others in the New Testament use this kinship family language 
of the family of God. Of course, that always sounds so good and warm and fuzzy until that means we can't kick racist Uncle Frank out of the family because we don't like him. And there are, of course, theological and ecclesiological analogies to that. And this actually reminds me of a story I once read in a collection of essays on community and place. It was about what it means to live in a community and live in a, a neighborhood. And I actually have the book here. It's a really good one. It's called Rooted in the Land, Essays on Community and Place. I just thought I'd read this real quick because I really appreciated the way it talks about this. Um, they had these neighbors that they didn't always get along with and who his mother didn't appreciate the language and the behavior of the other neighborhood kids and their father. He said, uh, Although my mother did not know the exact wording of the stories the Volbrecht girl was entertaining us with, she did know the kind of language the child used, and she heartily disapproved. She would have done anything in her power to deny my brother and me that part of our education, but there was nothing she could do about it. The Volbrechts had to be at the barn raising, just as they had to be there when we branded calves. They were neighbors, and that was that. So there's something, I think, to this art of not deciding who is in and who is out that our, our Jewish cousins understand better than maybe we do. So we don't get to decide who is in or who is out. That's the nature of the metaphor of family. That would be my, that would be my uh, point. I think some people might debate that. That's okay. You can, you can call me up anytime. I'm happy to have that debate. Two, uh, we don't get to decide who we love. We don't get to decide who's in and out, and we don't get to decide who we love. You know, Jesus makes this clear when one of the pastors of his days tries to squirm out of the, uh, the Old Testament instruction to love your neighbor. And of course, he asks famously, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds with a story where the despised people group of Jesus's day are the heroes. They're the ones that Jesus designates the neighbor. You know, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says some profound things about this. It's interesting because for a long time, I read the Beatitudes as that central piece for me of what Jesus is instructing. But you know what's been haunting me lately is this section in Matthew 5 where it says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a haunting thought that God is indiscriminate in how God acts towards people. I don't think I actually like that, to be honest. If you looked at how God behaved, you would actually find no discernible difference between how God acts toward the just and the unjust, between the good and the evil. I don't like that at all. But could the same be said of us? Jesus is explicit in making this point. Be perfect, meaning us. Be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Act like this. This is a hard teaching. You know, we don't get to decide who we love. 
And then the last point is we do get to decide how we love well. How do we love well? And I think of this rabbinic story in the Talmud that goes something like this. I'm going to read it here. For three years, there was a dispute between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, the ones asserting, the law is according to our views, and the others asserting, no, the law is according to our views. Then a divine voice came forth and said, the utterances of the one and those of the other are both the words of the living God, but the law is according to the school of Hillel. But since both are the words of the living God, what entitled the school of Hillel to have the law fixed according to their conclusions? because they were kind and humble. They taught their own rulings as well as the school of Shammai. I think that's a pretty profound uh, story that I think has a lot of implications for us today. So I'll leave you with two questions. You know, how might we value relationships over rightness? This is a, a question that's been circling in my mind for quite some time. How might we value relationships over rightness? And two, how might we advocate for the victim without resorting to hatred for the oppressor? These have been the two questions that have been lodged in my, in my head for a while. And really, some of that is what led me to write this book that I have now, Love Matters More. And then the subtitle is How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. But I just want to leave those two questions with you. Thanks again for letting me join you today. I hope this has been a helpful time to reflect on the story of Jacob and Esau, maybe in a little bit of a new light, um, the story of wrestling with God, and maybe it is going to be permission-giving for some of you as well. Um, maybe permission-giving to wrestle with God, wrestle with others. It's in the relationship. It's okay to disagree, but maybe uh, at the end of the day, refocusing on the relationship itself rather than on being right. And how can we do that well? All right, thanks everyone.